Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 87 of UAB Green and Told, original release Monday, December 19th, 2022. UAB Green and Told gives us a chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Looking for previous episodes? Check them out at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. And while there, leave a written review so more alumni can find us. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and director of communications in the Office of Alumni Affairs. When you think about Birmingham, you probably think of things like UAB, Sloss Furnaces, and even the Renaissance the community has been enjoying. But there's also a darker side to Birmingham, when the city was strife with conflict during the civil rights movement of the 60s. Today's guest, Leroy Simmons, will explain why he's no stranger to the community or its past. He grew up during the days when explosions were all too common. So growing up, uh, the bombings were so frequently that you know, we wonder who house it was or where it was. And, you know, then you go back to sleep. A UAB student in the 70s, Leroy saw the campus grow during its first decade as an autonomous university, which, as he'll explain, included struggles within Greek life. The greatest fear that we had my whole four years in the fraternity degree was that the chapter was going to die. I mean, you know, because we, we were not getting the influx of black students at UAB. And as a lifelong resident of Birmingham, Leroy has seen it all, including watching the city transform from blue collar to academia. I can see change literally every year. But I think the biggest thing, Greg, is that Birmingham changed, transformed from a steel mill town to an education to, to UAB. Roy Simmons grew up in perhaps the most volatile times in Birmingham, the 1960s. During those times, the Magic City was less than magical, as a civil rights fight took to the streets of a community struggling. As a youngster who grew up in the shadows of Legion Field, bombings and unrest were an unfortunate part of his life. I grew up on College Hills. That's the official name of the neighborhood. But it was called Dynamite Hill to a lot of people because we had a lot of bombings that occurred uh, during my childhood. Uh, Arthur Shores lived three blocks from my house. His home was bombed at least three times. And they were rattle the windows and sometimes break windows on my street. And uh, uh, there were other bombers in the neighborhood also, uh, but most prominent was Arthur Shores. Growing up with the bombings around you, it had to be a scary childhood for you. How did you look past that and kind of live a normal life? Unfortunately, Greg, you, you become desensitized. It's just like kids is growing up now with urban violence. Everybody knows somebody that's been shot or has somebody in your family who has gotten shot. Unfortunately, with the school shootings that we have and the mall shootings and such, it almost desensitizes you because, you know, like, I think we've been averaging, what, five, six, seven mass shootings a weekend. And so sometimes you just skip them. You won't even read. You just find out uh, if it was close to you or not. So growing up, uh, the bombings were so frequently that, you know, we wonder who house it was or where it was. And, you know, then you go back to sleep. I mean, it, it wasn't a big deal. Do you remember the first time that you kind of experienced a bombing in that neighborhood? And what was going through your mind and how old were you? Uh, first time I experienced a bombing, I may have been about eight 
or nine years old. Yeah, because it was before 1963. And, and 1963 is landmark because uh, 16th Street Baptist Church was born September 15, 1963. And so there, there, there must have been about two years of bombing before 16th Street Baptist Church was born. And uh, I was approximately 10 years old when the church was bombed and killed the four girls. And I remember riding by the church the Sunday after it was bombed. And you can still smell that odor, that dynamite odor. And see, I had smelled it before in my neighborhood. So you know what the odor is. Birmingham today is nowhere near where it was back in the 60s and even early 70s when you were growing up. What are the major differences between then and now? Well, hey, I was getting ready to go to class at UAB, Greg, in 1974. I had a, a 64 Chevy, silver. I was going down to put the garbage out in front of the house on College Hill. And uh, Birmingham Santa Street and Sanitation came up the street because I was rushing to get the can out before the garbage people got to my house. And uh, it was a black guy driving the truck. And this was 1974, Greg. And that was the first time I had seen a black driver. All the drivers were white. Up until, you know, there may have been one earlier that I missed, but that was the first time I had seen uh, a black driver driving a Birmingham garbage truck. Of course, you know, all the guys who worked on the truck were black, of course, but the driver was always white. But that was 1974. So, you know, that's not even 50 years ago. What did you want to do when you grew up? I tell you what I didn't want to be, and that was poor <laughs> growing up. Yeah. Uh, like my mother sold world book encyclopedias because you know teachers didn't make a whole lot of money back back then, Greg. So every summer my mother would sell encyclopedias, and she was one of the top salesmen in the city of Birmingham, black or white. All my relatives had world book encyclopedias, so. Uh, my brother and I got a new set every year because my, mother, because my mother was a top salesman. So our world was just like the internet to you. We had world book encyclopedias. So the world book encyclopedias allowed us to uh, breach places that we could never see in person by using their world book. Just the same way people use the internet right now. The main thing, by the eighth grade, I was working in Chicago. My uncle owned a string of service stations in Chicago. So I pumped gas, washed cars. Again, I knew that I did not want to be poor. I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew I didn't want to be poor because, uh, you know, one of my uncles lived in uh, Cabrina Green on the 16th floor. Are you familiar with Cabrina Green? They uh, tore the Taylor Homes in Chicago, the high rises. If you watch the uh, if you watch the Good Times, well, that's what that's that's it. Look, just if you looked at the good times, Greg, that was Cabrina Green or the Taylor Homes. And I lived on the 16th floor one summer with my uncle. It was bad neighborhood. What year did you graduate high school and what year did you enroll here at UAB? I enrolled at UAB in 73. Graduated from high school in 71. So you took a couple years off. During that time, did you kind of do exploring and try to find yourself before you went back to school? Or what was the decision to go to school. Obviously, you didn't want to be poor, but there had to have been another goal in there, right? Yeah, uh, I wanted to work and make some money. I went to Jefferson State uh, for a minute to uh, explore some other options. 
And then, you know, UAB just opened up in 1969. So, I mean, like UAB was a brand new school. So uh, I'm coming in there in 73. The school is now five years old. What was UAB like during that time? Because here we are just after all of the civil rights things that were going on in Birmingham, UAB becomes an autonomous university. So what was it like when it was a fledgling college when you were here? Well, first of all, there was six or seven buildings, Greg, period. The whole campus. Building one, two, three, Ullman building, the admin building, uh, the engineering building on 20th Street, the nursing dorm on 18th Street, I think. There were less than 10 buildings on campus. And uh, there were a lot of uh, lot of teachers going to school at night, including my dad, because he earned his master's degree sometime in the early 70s at UAB. And uh, basically, you had to work hard at UAB to be social, if you understand what I'm talking about. Because everybody was serious business, going to class, getting out of class, either going back home or going to work. So uh, if you were black at UAB, there was only one organization you could join to meet other black students, and that was the African-American Society. And therefore, most of the early students at UAB that were black, that were not school teachers, belonged to the African-American Society. Talk a little bit about that society and, and what exactly did it do? What did it provide you during your time at the university? It gave you the opportunity to meet females, Greg which you didn't see on campus. Uh, you know, you didn't even know there were any uh, black females on campus if you went to a certain type of classes uh, because most of the classes were white. Most of the uh, classes were uh, guys. If you wanted to meet other people that were black, male or female, you had to go to some organization. And back then, uh, they, they, they had these boards all over campus, like blackboards, but they were pin boards. And you would stick a pin in there African-American meeting next Thursday at 6 p.m. And then they tell you what, and they met in a large auditorium, I think it was building number, building number one, upstairs on the second floor. So you go up there, first meeting, uh, you sign in, everybody will introduce themselves. And, and, and you know, you, you were surprised because you had never seen that person on campus before until you walk into that room. So now, you know, what are you majoring in? Uh, how are you classified? The basic questions. You decide to get a, a degree from College of Arts and Sciences. You decide to go the political, you decide to go to the political science route. Why'd you choose poli sci? Because I was a, always very, very good in history, uh, geography. Uh, I made A's mostly through high school. And I was very, always interested in, in history. And, and uh, political science basically is a part, a portion of history. My academic advisor was Odessa Woolfolk, who is the founding uh, chair of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. At the time, she was, she was teaching at UAB and she was my academic advisor. So, you know, uh, and registration was an all day thing near back, Greg. That's the one thing we go sit in the Ullman building from nine o'clock that morning to three o'clock that evening, then you had to go get, once you got a card, the teacher had to come, you had to go to the teacher's office, sign off on that card, and sometimes the class was already closed. Then you had to do it all over again to find a class that was open at the time slot that you wanted. 
So registration was archaic back then. Everybody on campus, regardless of what your major was, had to come sit in that hot auditorium until you go through the process. You enroll in 73, you graduate in 77 with a bachelor's of art degree. How did the university change in just those small, short four years? Let's see, I found, I was well, I was one of the founding members of Alpha Phi Alpha on campus. During my tenure there, Omegas were founded, the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority was founded, Delta Sigma Theta sorority was founded, Zeta Phi Beta sorority was founded, Phi Beta Sigma fraternity was founded. Mostly all of the black fraternities and sororities were founded while I was on campus. And that was highly significant. Uh, in fact, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have gotten everybody's autograph and taken their pictures because I, I was one of the few people who was there for the founding of all those Greek organizations. Why was it so important for the black students enrolled at UAB to form these fraternities and sororities? Was it just the camaraderie or was there something else? Basically, it started off as social, because we started off with 25 guys trying to MIA club, which is men interested in alpha. So that drew, that dwindled down to 15 guys that actually started pledging. And then 13 of those 15 guys actually started and uh, became the first uh, chapter of the first land at UAB. Now, that was always interaction, but you know, the driving force back then was social. There was no social activities provided by the school for, for, for minority students, period. The Baptist Student Union probably was the next, and I belong to the Baptist Student Union also. And, and, the, and the more organizations that started at UAB, the better it became for minorities on campus, period. We went through a phrase, uh, and now there were a lot of white fraternities and sororities that started during the same period. So I think that was the golden time of the Greek system at UAB in the, in the 70s. Because I think almost 90% of all the organizations, and then you can go back and verify this, started in the same within the same five years. If I heard you right, you help establish one of those fraternities. Correct. What went into establishing the fraternity that you helped start? Because it couldn't have been just as easy as, all right, snap my fingers, it's done. No, it took a year. <laughs> uh, fortunately, our advisor was Dr. Aaron L. Lamar. He was, a, he was over student affairs at UAB, which helped. So he already had the connections and the hookups and he was he was in a, he was in the fraternity already. The the chapter over at Miles College, which is in, you know, it's in Birmingham, they provide a significant role. Plus the alumni chapter here provided a, a significant role. But having Dr. Aaron L. Lamar on campus was already like a built-in advisor. And that really helped us a lot. Did the fraternity grow as quick as you kind of had hoped, or were you surprised with how things kind of progressed? Well, the greatest field that we had my whole four years in the fraternity degree was that the chapter was going to die. I mean, you know, because we, we were not getting the influx of black students at UAB to support all of the black fraternities and sororities. So uh, I, there were 13 of us on the charter, on the original land at UAB. Uh, 
I think it was until the 1980s before they had a land that size again. Our greatest fear was that the chapter would not be able to sustain itself. How meaningful is it for you being a black man from Birmingham, lived through the civil rights era, has seen Birmingham kind of revitalize itself? How meaningful is it to be working at a place like the BCRI today? I get to give tours to uh, foreigners that come here because I, I belong to a group of tour guides. So, and of course I have firsthand knowledge going all the way back to the early sixties. So I'm always available, especially when very, uh, very important guests come here. And again, my academic advisor at UAB, which was Odessa Woolfolk, founded the Civil Rights Institute. So, you know, it's all tied in for me. Looking back at your days growing up in the 60s, early 70s, to where Birmingham is today, obviously, I'm sure you wanted Birmingham to be more where it is today than where it is back then. But did you ever think it would get to that point? Did you ever think Birmingham would be a more progressive city and and a place, a destination for people to come? I thought so, because even even back then, Greg, in the 60s and early 70s, you could see incremental change. I remember when uh, Arrington got on the city council. That was a big, big change. I remember when Arthur Shores got on the uh, city council before Arrington did. So you could see incremental changes. And by going through the, uh, David Van was a very progressive uh, mayor. And I think he replaced Siebel's as mayor of Birmingham. David Van came in with a very aggressive plan and hired a lot of people, a lot of minorities while he was mayor of Birmingham. I saw, it was 1967 and 1968, I was in high school, Greg, when the two first black policemen started here in Birmingham. And that was a big deal. I remember the first black fireman here in Birmingham. And that was a big deal. You know, all those guys are here at Syracuse Institute on the wall to tour. So, but I, as I was growing up from high school to college, I could see change literally every year. But I think the biggest thing, Greg, is that Birmingham changed, transformed from a steel mill town to an education to, to UAB. Because, uh, you know, the steel mill had a couple of bouts where they had shut down, either they were on strike or steel wasn't moving. But anyway, the problems with the steel mill, I think, enhanced the growth of UAB. Because the, 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 the doctors at UAB, uh, I think, well, UAB was a med school for Alabama before they became uh, a separate university. So we were already getting uh, high-tech doctors here already before the university even started. So every time UAB expanded, it gave the opportunity for more people to come here and visit Birmingham uh, that were intellectual and not uh, blue-collar. Since Birmingham has transitioned from a steel city to more of an educational place, do you think the city would survive without UAB at this point? Oh shoot, it'll be it'll be tough. If UAB left the neighborhood next week, I don't know where Birmingham would be. Where do you see Birmingham going in the next 10, 15, 20 years? If they can get cooperation, Greg, from the suburbs, uh, we can be another Charlotte. 
But, you know, I amaze a lot of people, Greg, when I tell them that I remember Birmingham was bigger than Atlanta. And I remember that. But when the Braves got here, then CNN, then Coca-Cola, bam. Atlanta took off. And Birmingham stayed where Birmingham was. We we were still we were still fighting the civil rights movement while Atlanta was zooming up. That's Leroy Simmons. Leroy earned his Bachelor of Arts in Urban Affairs in 1977 and is currently the safety manager at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Having seen UAB transform into the institution it is today, Leroy has a great idea of what it means to be a blazer. I'm, I'm from Birmingham. I, I represent UAB. Uh, when I walked through the airport in Chicago in March, I had a, a, a blazer cap on, and, 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 and people would go blazers. And, and it didn't say blazers, Greg. All it had was a dragon on it. You, you seen the hat. You know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. It had the emblem on it. So you would have to know who, who UAB was, and you have to know what the blazers were, because that's the only thing I had on the hat. I just had a dragon on the hat. I didn't have anything in UAB or blazer. It was just it was just blaze. And I'm walking through the airport in Chicago, and I get several go blazers, ever loyal, or go UAB. It's got to make you feel good. Uh, absolutely, because you know back when back in the six back in the uh, early days. You would have to wear UAB and then put University of Alabama at Birmingham so people would know what the UAB stood for. So now, you know, the logo, I think, is so widespread now, and the athletic department has a lot to do with that, that you, you get recognized anywhere with, uh, a, with a drag. Be sure to listen into previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. Check out our website at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share or know someone we need to get in touch with? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers. <laughs>